Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. But once a month we have a bonus horror adjacent episode where we cover a movie that is not quite horror. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Now, folks might be a little confused because uh, this bonus episode is not coming out when they usually come out at the end of the month. Um, Ben, can you tell us why that is? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a few, there's a few reasons. One of them is that we had a housewarming party with a bunch of our friends over and we played D&D all day and I'm recovering from that. I'm very tired. (laughs) But uh, more significantly, um, we ran into some hiccups with some Japanese films we have coming up. The next film we were planning to cover was Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi, directed by Masaki Mori, who directed the 1956 version of Yatsuya Kaiden. However, this is a very difficult movie to track down. I had a copy on YouTube uh, that we were going to watch, and then the channel associated with that YouTube video got taken down. After we announced that we were watching it, too. Yeah. It was like just recently. Yeah. So that's a problem. So I tried searching for like other copies of the movie and the problem with this is that the title of the movie is very similar to kaiden kasami gafuchi directed by nobuo nakagawa which we have already covered on the show and is a more like known movie in the west i guess so i have been unable to track down a copy of kaiden kagami gafuchi that we can watch so then it was like okay well what about the next movie on the list? That is going to be Yatsuya Kaiden, the 1959 version directed by Kenji Masumi, uh, which was like a big budget A movie uh, prestige adaptation, which I have a copy of, but I don't have English subtitles for. And I'm having a really hard time tracking down English subtitles for because when you search Yatsuya Kaiden 1959, what you tend to find is Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. From 1959, released literally a week later, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa, which was like a B-movie knockoff, but became the most famous, highly regarded movie version of Yatsuya Kaiden, which we'll be able to watch pretty easily because it's on the Criterion channel. Mm -hmm. So, listeners, if you know where I can find a copy of Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi or subtitles for the 1959 Kenji Misumi version of Yotsuya Kaiden, please, please let me know. You can get in touch with us through our email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. For now, we're going to be doing our bonus episode, and then we'll be hitting up Invisible Invaders. Yeah, we had, I don't know if it qualifies to be called an appeal, but basically a request. request. Longtime listener Fern Mm -hmm. uh, sent in an email suggesting that we actually watch Invisible Invaders, which would be the bottom half of the double feature of last week's movie, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. So um, both because logistically it kind of makes sense to just follow it up, uh, but also because Fern gave a very good explanation and reasoning behind us watching it, which we will cover when we get to that movie. We're going to be doing that next week. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be 
convinced that it's horror, but it will give me the time I need to sort out these Japanese movies. <laughs> Another piece of good podcast news is that we have a new patron to thank. Thank you, Spelunker, for being the most recent patron of the night to join our uh, hellish crusade upon the land. <laughs> thank you, Spelunker. If you would like to join Spelunker and uh, our other patrons of the night, you can head to patreon.com slash podcast. That's also where you can vote for the next horror-adjacent movie with the poll coming up now. It's up now. Sure. Yes. When this episode goes out, that poll will be up. I'm sure everything is going to go up precisely on time because it's not like going on a business trip to Colorado is going to cause any kind of delays in the production pipeline. <laughs> no, that's what the flights are for. Mm. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, this week I'll be on a business trip. So, uh, that hasn't been anxiety inducing trying to figure out like I have normal travel anxiety and then I have COVID anxiety on top of that, which, uh, my boss was like, oh, well, since you've gotten COVID now, your anxiety around that should probably be less. And I'm like, no, that was the fucking worst. I do not want to get sick again. Yeah. Especially like if like the after effects are cumulative, yes. like the brain fog I have now is real bad like maybe not bad from the point of view of someone else you know everything's on a relative sliding scale but i'm used to like my brain working much better than it has been working and i don't need it working any worse mm -hmm. but you know uh horror movies really do help with my anxiety um so this movie will not help at all uh we are <laughs> watching london after midnight from 1927 directed by todd browning now dear listeners you might be wondering, how are you watching London After Midnight, one of the most famous lost films of all time? Have you somehow managed to gain a fabled copy, a, a holy grail of film scholars everywhere? No, no, we have not. Uh, not at all. I'll tell you a bit about what we're going to be watching later. I'm sure some of you have guessed. But, you know, first we're going to talk about London After Midnight and what its deal is. And I will say that if London After Midnight existed... We might have actually watched it for the main show, simply because, although it is horror adjacent, coming out in 1927 like it did, it's about as much horror as American movies were at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, including stuff that we did like The Monster or Cat in the Canary, we would probably also include London After Midnight, but we didn't because it doesn't exist. It burned up in a fire. So for those of you who are not familiar with this very, very famous um, lost film. We're going to tell you a bit about what it is, what the deal is. So London After Midnight is the most successful, uh, commercially speaking, collaboration between actor Lon Chaney Sr. and director Todd Browning. So obviously we know both of these guys from the early days of the podcast. Todd Browning went on to do Dracula, amongst other things. And uh, Lon Chaney did Phantom of the Opera, amongst other things. This for Lon Chaney is coming after Phantom, and I think after The Unknown. Uh, no, it's before The Unknown. Okay. Why don't you remind me kind of a bit about the careers of Lon Chaney and Todd Browning? Because it's it's been a while. Sure. So, Todd Browning. He was born in 1880, and his birth name was Charles Albert Browning Jr., now, little Chuck, he loved the circus and decided that he would run away from home at 16 to join one. 
from Barker to Vaudevillian, Chuck rose... I like calling him Chuck. Yeah, I see that. Uh, Chuck rose through the ranks in the entertainment business, eventually developing his own acts, like what was called his live burial act. Um, It's around this time that he started going by Todd as his Vaudevillian stage name, because Todd means death in German. Yep, sure does. Real goth. Love it. I've always felt that Todd Browning and Tim Burton were very much kindred spirits. Oh, absolutely. They would be best friends. Or they would hate each other because they'd be so similar. Yeah. They they both have the same, like, I'm going to associate goth stuff with circus stuff Mm -hmm. mentality. And the outcasts. Yeah. So at 29 in 1909, uh, Todd Browning transitioned from vaudevillian acts to film shorts. And of course, at this time, everything is silent film. Um, so he would perform, um, suggest plots, gags, and more. And of course, early silent film like this, uh, everyone can kind of do anything. Yeah. Um, there's Very no, free for all. Yeah, free for all. There's no set like, no, that's the screenwriter. You don't get to write. Everyone gets to really fully collaborate. He would be hired by D.W. Griffith in 1913 and have his directorial debut with 1915's The Lucky Transfer. Unfortunately, Todd Browning had um, a bit of a, an alcohol problem. Um, and in 1915, he had a car accident where he drove into a train. Uh, so he was badly hurt. Um, He had one passenger who was badly hurt and another who was killed instantly. And a lot of film scholars point to this incident being like a turning point for him, where rather than just doing like vaudeville slapstick stuff, he kind of turns to themes that are more about like holding people accountable and having retribution against people, which is interesting. I don't know enough about his filmography to be able to uh, agree or disagree. So with that directorial debut in 1915, Todd Browning fully pivoted to being a writer-director rather than an actor, Um, and his uh, milieu was usually silent melodramas. He cut his teeth at Metro Pictures, then transitioned to Bluebird Photoplays, which was a subsidiary of Universal, and had a very successful series of films there starring Priscilla Dean. Yeah, you might remember if you're like someone with a just ace memory for the early, early days of the podcast (laughs) that Bluebird was one of like the classifications of Universal films. Like there was the Jewels, the Super Jewels, and then below those, Bluebird and the other one was like Red something, like Red J or something like that. Yeah, they all had kind of color-coded stuff for like prestige versus not prestige. Yes, yes. So Priscilla Dean was a major film star for the studio and had this tough girl persona. So when she was doing these films with Browning, he brought in these criminal elements to this melodramatic formula. Ultimately, they would have nine films together. And over the course of those films, um, the Priscilla Dean pictures would graduate from Bluebird to regular Universal. Mm. And the fifth of these nine films was 1919's The Wicked Darling, a silent crime film where Browning first met and worked with Lon Chaney, who played a pickpocket. They collaborated again in 1921's Outside the Law, uh, another Priscilla Dean flick, uh, where Chaney played a dual character and 
his one character murders his other on screen through like trick photography which might make it a really interesting like uh candidate for a double feature with boris karloff's um the black room the black room yeah now browning is making these movies they are successful so he's getting on good with these producers at Universal, particularly producer Irving Thalberg. In 1925, Thalberg left Universal as their vice president to head over to MGM to become a production manager. And Browning, as well as Lon Chaney, left with him. Browning's first big project at MGM was 1925's The Unholy Three, and London After Midnight in 1927 would be Browning and Chaney's fifth MGM project together with their next collaboration being 1927's The Unknown, um, which is kind of the first time that we really talk about Todd Browning. So if you want more details about him, uh, you should check out episode 20. Gosh, and, that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. And then The Unknown is currently ranked at number 182. Okay. Yeah, I feel like Browning and Cheney were really lucky to find each other. Yeah, but when you look at the work they're doing, there's no way that they would not have met. Sure, sure. But like just the way that they both kind of clearly had this appetite for like the weird and the macabre, but like Hollywood movies were not really like set up for that. You know, it was like, no, watch these pretty people fall in love. And Todd Browning and Lon Chaney are like, well, what if we made weird movies about ugly people, though? And so they kind of had to like start with like crime dramas and then have those be successful enough they could be like, but what if he was an armless guy who wasn't really armless, who fell in love with this girl at the circus and then cut his own arms off to not lie to the girl? And then it turns out while he was recovering from that, she married someone else. And then he gets trampled by a horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd Browning would do several more silence at MGM before transitioning to sound with the 13th chair in 1929. His third sound picture would be 1931's Dracula. Back at Universal. Yes. Now, Todd Browning's last film was 1939's Miracles for Sale, and he retired a few years later. Uh, he became a recluse after retiring, particularly after his wife's death in 1944, and Todd Browning passed away from cancer in 1962. Mm. Now, Lon Chaney, uh, he was born in 1883 on April 1st which I love. Um, and the, this man of a thousand faces was born Leonidas Frank Cheney. Wow. I guess I had forgotten that his name was Leonidas. <laughs> and he was born to two deaf parents. As he grew up, he became very skilled in pantomiming, and that served him well when he went into vaudeville in 1902 when he was 19 years old. He would marry three years later. They would have a son, Creighton Tull Cheney, in 1906, who would later go on to be Lon Chaney Jr. In 1913, Chaney's married life was not good. No. And those marital problems culminated uh, with Chaney's wife going to the theater where Chaney was stage manager um, and attempting suicide. She survived, but um, everyone in the theater business was like, holy shit, Lon Chaney, like, are you like a terrible person because your wife did this? So they managed to get divorced, and this was also partly why Cheney decided to head into film rather than stick with theater. Um, he got his foot in the door at Universal, uh, leveraging his makeup skills to really showcase himself as like a, a standard like heavy or crony for the bad guy, that sort of thing. 
He rose in the ranks and became known as the prominent character actor you want to choose for either dark macabre films or dark macabre characters. In 1919, he was in The Miracle Man as The Frog, and people point to that film as being like his opportunity to showcase his actual acting skills rather Mm. than just his makeup skills. And that is the same year that he had his beginning partnership with Todd Browning. Lon Chaney's makeup skills and acting skills came to the forefront in Hollywood uh, with 1923's Hunchback of Notre Dame which was a prestige picture, a lot of marketing behind it. Everyone saw it, and Lon Chaney became, if he wasn't already, a household name. Right. And it's worth remembering that, like, this was a period when, like, all actors did their makeup. Like, (laughs) all actors did their own makeup for a long time. It's just that Lon Chaney was light years ahead of everyone else and had those skills to essentially be what we would call, like, a makeup effects person now and could do that on himself. It's like if Doug Jones did all of his own makeup as well. Yeah, totally. And Uh, everybody else was doing their own makeup, but it was like, yeah, I can put on eyeshadow pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Now, we first uh, met Lon Chaney on the podcast uh, in 1925's The Monster, which is episode 13, Mm -hmm. uh, currently ranked at number 214. And we really dig into particularly his makeup skills in... Um, our episode on The Phantom of the Opera, which is listed as coming out in 1925-29 because of the sound version. And that we covered in episode 14. And Phantom of the Opera is currently ranked at number 47. Yeah, I still am very proud of our Phantom of the Opera episode, although it was produced very early in the show's run. Um, I think it was our first super long episode. Yes, You'd been attempting to keep like episode lengths down. Like I remember we cut a lot of information about John Barrymore out of our like Jekyll and Hyde episode. And then with Phantom of the Opera, it was like, no, you have to include all of this. It's all relevant somehow. (laughs) Now, the last Browning and Cheney collaboration was Where East is East in 1929. Cheney was slated to play Dracula, but by then he had a terminal diagnosis of lung cancer. Ultimately, Cheney's last film would be his only sound film as well. It would be the remake of The Unholy Three in 1930, directed by Jack Conway. So he passed away in 1930. The story for London After Midnight was originally called The Hypnotist and was written by Todd Browning. So he wrote the story outline. Then the finished screenplay or scenario was penned by Valdemar Young, who had worked with Browning before on The Unholy Three and The Unknown. Young was born in Salt Lake City in 1878 and attended Stanford University in 1900, where he played on the football team and majored in English, but ultimately dropped out without completing his degree to go become a journalist in San Francisco. Interesting. His first work in film was writing comedy routines for um, like slapstick comedy shorts, but he rose up to become a writer at the young studio of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in the 1920s. In addition to the three films he wrote for Todd Browning, he also wrote The Sign of the Cross and Island of Lost Souls in 1932 and Cleopatra in 1934. Young used his experience covering murder investigations in San Francisco to inform his murder mystery scripts, such as London After Midnight, because, spoiler alert, there's a murder. London After Midnight uh, is a murder mystery story in a Scooby-Doo kind of style, almost like a reverse Scooby-Doo, yeah. actually. Like if, if Fred and Daphne and the gang were the ones 
dressing up as monsters. Uh, speaking of the monster, the vampire at the center of this movie, that vampire is played by Lon Chaney. And to create his makeup for this film, you know, Lon Chaney always created these elaborate makeups, most of which make you wonder if he was some kind of masochist. But Lon Chaney intentionally went for an over-the-top look for the vampire in this film because the character is actually a detective disguised as a vampire. To this end, uh, this film is the only time that Chaney's real-life makeup case was seen on screen as a prop at the end of the movie when he explains like how he created his vampire look. That's just Chaney like, showing you really how he really created his vampire look. Uh, now, to create the vampire, Chaney created a set of fake pointed teeth that, of course, hurt to wear for more than, like, five minutes at a time. And to create the effect of his, like, sunken in but bulging eyes, he wore wire fittings um, that were sort of like glassless monocles in his eye sockets, which, of course, also hurt to wear. Yeah, he is willing to endure pain for his art. This is true. Chaney's fellow vampire, the female vampire in this movie, is played by actress Edna Teichenor, who was born in Minnesota in 1901, but by 1904, her family had relocated to Los Angeles. Her first credited role was in Todd Browning's Drifting in 1923 for Universal, and that same year she also had a small role in the original silent version of The Gold Diggers. By the mid-1920s, she had sort of adopted a vamp persona, uh, which to remind listeners, if you're seeing stuff from the 20s and earlier talking about vamps, they don't mean vampires. They mean like femme fatales. fatales. Yeah. So that sort of makes her casting in London After Midnight an example of like playing into that. Like let's have the vamp play a vampire, right? She appeared in another Todd Browning film this same year, The Show, where she portrayed a sideshow performer with the body of a spider and the head of a woman named Arachnida. <laughs> yeah, that's a Todd Browning flick. Yeah. Her final role was in Browning's 1928 film, West of Zanzibar, after which she retired from acting. And she passed away in 1965 due to complications following a hysterectomy. The female lead of the movie, however, was played by actress Marceline Newlin, who was born in 1908 and raised in Salt Lake City. Her older sister, Jacqueline Newlin, had become an actress as one of the uh, Max Sennett bathing beauties for Keystone Studios under the name Alice Day. So the bathing beauties were like a group of slapstick comedian women in bathing suits uh, who would get into escapades and sort of were like a set of characters that comedy shorts could be built around, similar to the um, other set of characters that Keystone Studios had, the Keystone Cops. Mm -hmm. So soon afterwards, Marceline joined her under the name Marceline Day, getting her start in like comedies with her sister before branching out on her own. She began appearing in longer and more dramatic roles, such as appearing with John Barrymore in 1927's The Beloved Rogue. By the late 1920s, she had eclipsed her sister in stardom, appearing with Buster Keaton in 1928's The Cameraman, with Douglas Fairbanks in 1929's The Jazz Age, and with her sister in 1929's The Show of Shows. Her star had dimmed, however, in the 1930s, and she ended up retiring from acting in 1933. She passed away in the year 2000 at the age of 91. Wow, that's a good long run. Yeah. One of her fellow bathing beauties joins her in this film as well. Actress Polly Moran plays the maid, 
in this movie. And while by this point, Marceline Day had like transitioned into dramatic roles, Polly Moran was still basically like a slapstick comedian. And so her character forms the comic relief for this movie. Sure. Similar to probably the, the composition of like the bat that we saw. Yeah. The male romantic lead here is played by Conrad Nagel, who was at this time a matinee idol. Born John Conrad Nagel in 1897 in Iowa, he left for Hollywood after college and immediately benefited from being 20 years old, six feet tall, blonde-haired, and (laughs) blue-eyed. His first role was as Laurie in the 1918 version of Little Women, but his star-making turn was in 1920's The Fighting Chance. Uh, His baritone voice was also perfect for early sound, and so he made the transition into sound films very well. And he actually appeared in so many films in the early 1930s that he told an anecdote about him and his wife going out to the movies and being unable to find a theater that he wasn't playing in. (laughs) His career slowed down in the 1940s, but he continued to appear on radio and television until a few years before his death in 1970. Another notable name in the cast uh, is Henry Walthall, who is perhaps best known for his role as the heroic founder of the Ku Klux Klan in D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Mm. We've actually talked about Walthall before Mm -hmm. on the show, Uh, but he was born on a cotton plantation in Alabama in 1878, the son of a Confederate captain, or ex-Confederate captain, I guess, by 1878. Uh, And at age 20, Walthall actually followed in his father's footsteps, kind of, to enlist uh, in the U.S. Army to fight in the Spanish-American War. But he contracted malaria and was sick in bed and did not recover until the war was over. Afterwards, he headed to New York to become a stage actor, and he appeared in the New York theater scene for seven years before joining D.W. Griffith's roster of actors at the Biograph Film Company in 1909. He rose in stardom, uh, as Griffith did, uh, and as Griffith's other actors did with him, uh, and appeared in Birth of a Nation in 1915. However, the year before, he had appeared as the lead character, the nephew, in The Avenging Conscience, uh, which we watched way back in episode three. Oh my god. Uh, And The Avenging Conscience is ranked at number 201 as of this episode. He also played Edgar Allan Poe in 1915's The Raven and continued to act through the 1920s and 30s regularly, aging into a respected character actor. Uh, He appeared in The Devil Doll in 1935, another Todd Browning film, as Marcel. Uh, And basically he died in 1936 of overwork. Sure. Uh, he, I think it was heart failure, but basically like everyone kind of saw that he was super sick and it was because like he had been just working nonstop and his doctors were like, don't do that. And he didn't listen to them and then he died. So take breaks, everybody. So London After Midnight was released by MGM on December 3rd, 1927. It had cost $151,666.14 to produce and it grossed $1,004,000. Uh, making it the most successful collaboration between Browning and Cheney. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. In 1927, making over a million dollars on a like $150,000 budget, massive. Uh, however, critical reaction was much more mixed uh, than the public's enthusiasm. The plot was considered incoherent and nonsensical, but the film's atmosphere and Cheney's makeup won praise, although... Cheney's performance was kind of considered to be like not as good as some of his past highs. 
and Browning's direction was considered inferior to Paul Lenny's Cat in the Canary that same year. Mm. The movie was noted for pushing the horror elements further than the critics were accustomed to at the time, uh, which might also contribute to the negative reaction. But the film's commercial success uh, led to Browning being considered the ideal person to direct Dracula in 1931. And then in 1935, as mentioned, he remade this film uh, in sound, uh, but with Lugosi in the vampire role and Lionel Barrymore in the investigator role. Uh, so the two part kind of split there, which actually means that like Bella Lugosi only has like one line of dialogue mm. in that remake. Uh, that's Mark of the Vampire, which we covered in episode 49 and is currently ranked number 146. Film historians William K. Everson and David Bradley saw London After Midnight in the 1950s, and they believed it to be inferior to Mark of the Vampire. Um, <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, now, that could be accurate, uh, but it's also worth pointing out that, like, generally speaking, the, um, like, reappreciation of silent films hadn't really started by then. That kind of movement began in the 1960s. Sure. Uh, thanks to guys like um, Raymond Rothauer and, and others. So, you know, for a while, there was a lot of like, you know, this is the era of um, Sunset Boulevard kind of looking at silent films and being like, oh, look how melodramatic they were and stuff like that. So might be a biased opinion, might not. We'll never know uh, because London After Midnight gained a strange kind of immortality when the last surviving print of it burned in the 1965 MGM vault fire. Now, you might be wondering, Ben, if the movie was so popular how could there be only one print remaining by the 1960s? Shouldn't there be prints like kind of all over the place? To which I will say in the old days of film, uh, especially like that old nitrate film, the more popular a film was, the more times its print would be played and played and played, which would lead to more damage. Ultimately, films would snap. Generally speaking, films that weren't popular and didn't do well are the ones that sort of have the most like pieces still lying about, which is why we have a lot of Metropolis, uh, but nothing of London After Midnight. <laughs> but Metropolis is good. It's good, but it wasn't popular. Uh, it I lost see, a I ton see. of fucking money. Okay. Yeah, it bankrupted a studio. <laughs> now, in the pre-internet era, you have to understand, um, silent films were rare, but they sort of had this mystique that would build up around them from like being mentioned in film magazines and books. You know, imagine growing up, you're a kid in the 1960s and 70s. You've never seen Lon Chaney and Phantom of the Opera, but you'd read like magazines and books written by people who did see it in the 20s who'd be like, oh, it was amazing. The Man of a Thousand Faces. And they'd show some cool pictures, right? Once you got to the era of home video, that made many of these silent films accessible again. It took a while before they were accessible in versions that were good, but, you know, they yeah. were accessible. You could see them. So in that context, London After Midnight's continued inaccessibility built up its reputation, uh, particularly due to the still photos that showed off Cheney's makeup and the movie's production design. The myth around the film grew even more due to the notion that Cheney would have played Dracula if he hadn't have died. So there was a lot of like, oh, maybe it would have looked like London After Midnight or something, which probably wouldn't. Cheney was always very careful to make everything he did totally unique. 
But also, like, by the 90s, there was this developing idea that, like, Lugosi wasn't actually good as Dracula and was, like, a bad actor and that the Spanish version was, like, superior. And so this partisan film fandom thing developed around the idea that, like, maybe Cheney would have been superior in the role to Lugosi and that if we had London After Midnight, we could, like, see what, like, Cheney's vampire was like. And so soon, London After Midnight became one of the most famous and sought-after lost films of all time. It's sort of the, like poster boy for lost films in a way and you know people would hear rumors or sometimes just make up rumors about like oh there's a print somewhere and there's just some dude who owns it who won't let people restore it or something like that yeah i think i heard that from my uncle who works at nintendo right exactly like these kind of urban legends that would build up which you know people would put some stock into because after all like new pieces of metropolis were getting found in like janitor's closets in argentina all the time yeah that's how hexen was found it, yeah and um passion of joan of arc and stuff right so like with all those kinds of things it was like well why not london after midnight right there must be something out there somewhere so it became very like hip in the horror cinephile or goth like subcultures to kind of like name drop london after midnight um because it's very hipster it's like oh, it's the the vampire movie before Dracula and it's with Lon Chaney and Todd Browning and it also just doesn't exist and like who knows what a masterpiece it could have been and like you don't know about it because why would you? It's a silent film that doesn't exist but I do and that makes me cooler than you. You know, that kind of uh, hipster attitude. Um, There's a very popular band named after it and filmmakers like Tim Burton and Jennifer Kent have used its imagery for characters like the penguin and the Babadook. However, its reputation has built up so much that film historian John Mirsalis believes it would ultimately be a disappointment to modern audiences if it was actually found um, due to the fact that it has that Scooby-Doo ending and also that a lot of the movies actually taken up with comic relief from Polly Moran or like dialogue scenes between Cheney and Henry Waltall. And the gothic elements, you know, focusing on the vampires actually form a sort of small percentage of the overall runtime. As is characteristic of a lot of the horror movies of this time period. Yeah, exactly. Now, in 2002, Turner Classic Movies hired silent film scholar Rick Schmidlin, who had produced the 1998 restoration of Orson Welles's Touch of Evil, and the 1999 reconstruction of Eric von Stroheim's Greed uh, to create a version of London After Midnight using the still photos and the screenplay with new music, which basically is like a 40-minute slideshow. Uh, So kind of just displaying the still photos in order of the story, putting in title cards where we know they would have been, having some music, and getting as close as we can get to watching the film. Uh, And this premiered on TCM on Halloween of 2002. This version is available on DVD in the Lon Chaney Collection DVD from TCM Archive. And this is what we will be watching, is Mm -hmm. this 40-minute slideshow reconstruction. So, as much as we... If it existed, we would have watched it and ranked it uh, when we got to London After Midnight in the usual timeline of the show... Uh, The reason this is considered a horror-adjacent kind of movie is because it's the slideshow. It's as close as we're going to get, but there's no way that... It's like, it's not a real movie. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't fairly judge the movie on it. Like, you just can't. And so, you know, I threw it in as an idea for a bonus episode because... 
yeah, it's a fun thing to do for a bonus episode, but like, it's not really the movie. Well, I am still excited. If you are too, listener, uh, Ben has said where you can find this uh, slideshow of London After Midnight. <laughs> You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss the slideshow of London After Midnight from 1927, directed... What, should I still call this directed by Todd Browning? Or would it I mean, be directed London, by this guy? London After Midnight is directed by Todd Browning. The reconstruction of London After Midnight was created by Rick Schmidlin. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching a reconstruction of London After Midnight, a film from 1927 that was lost in a fire in 1965 that Rick Schmidlin made a slideshow of in 2002. And originally directed by Todd Browning. That's right. Um, so Sarah, what did you think of this experience? Like, like, what did you think of the movie? But also, what did you think of like watching this like reconstruction of the movie? Interesting reconstruction. Mm. Um, it's only like 40 minutes. Yeah. And I feel like that was a good length. Sure. I have a question for you. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it like it's worth waiting till like the discussion part of the show or what. But um, so it's all using photo stills mm-hmm. of like scenes. Mm-hmm. Would these have been taken during filming for like marketing purposes? Correct. Yeah. And that's what still photos are. And are to this day, like still photos are a standard practice on film sets. They have been for ever for marketing practices. You have a still photographer who comes in and shoots like staged photos of the scenes. And is it like they like the photographer is there on the day that they're shooting that scene? Or is it like a all in one day we're just taking these photos and you're recreating each part? No, the stills photographer is there on the day day that they're shooting those scenes because to get back to the locations or the sets or whatever would be insane um so what usually happens is like the scene shoots and then they get the stills photographer to come in and like take a few pictures after shooting's done of like give me that moment or this moment or whatever okay and then those are used for marketing because like actually taking well for one thing back in the day like didn't really have trailers well no just like If you were making, like, there used to be tons to film marketing that we don't really think of today, like ads in magazines, uh, articles in film fan kind of magazines, um, lobby cards Mm. in theaters, tons and tons of stuff that you want photos for. Today, used to be you'd want them for, like, the back of the VHS tape or, you know, whatever, or, like, magazine stories. Like, again, like, there's all kinds of reasons why you want still photos. We all have still photos today. Um, if you're seeing like a picture from a movie, unless it's like a screenshot someone took during the movie, it's probably a stills photo and it just looks close to that moment in the movie because that's the deal. But like, you know, if you're back in the twenties or thirties and you're using film for all of this, like, okay, so you're going to develop the negative. Yeah. No, make the print. Screenshot in yeah. The and then like copy one frame out of it and then send that out to marketing no, you need to start marketing way in advance. So if you have stills photos that were done on the day of shooting, they can be developed sooner and you can start 
hyping the movie through marketing like before the edit's done. So that's what these are, and that's what Still's photos are. They're a thing that's still done today. And so because of that, we have all this record of what London After Midnight kind of looked like. Yeah. So they would even do, they do the reveal, obviously, like like who, who the bad guy is. Yeah. I mean, you would just take Still's photos of like... Every scene? Um, Pretty much, uh, like depending on what the marketing needs for the movie were. But yeah, pretty much. Um, because... You know, you would just do that and then like marketing would decide what photos they wanted to put out and like how they were going to use them because there could be all sorts of reasons why you would use such things. Another thing that like probably would surprise people today is that like maybe not like newspapers and things, but like film magazines, like if you were a fan and you got magazines because you're not going on forums and shit, you're not going on Twitter and shit, you're not going on youtube to watch trailers like it's 1927 so you would subscribe to these magazines these magazines would give the whole plot of the movie away Mm. like they would just give you the whole story i wasn't sure because it's a murder mystery right yeah it was really common for that to happen um now granted like i said that's if you were a fanboy and you had a or fangirl, actually, more likely at the time. And yeah, if you had the a, fan uh, history around this time is really interesting. Yeah, uh, and you had a subscription to one of these things, right? Whereas it might be different. Well, the other thing that we have actually a lot of record of, too, not just fan stuff, but, like, if you worked in exhibition, you were a theater owner, the studios weren't going to send you, like whole reels of movies months before they came out so you could decide whether you wanted to buy them to show in your movie theater. Sure. There were actually like trade magazines that the exhibitors would get with like, here's the entire plot of, you know, Phantom of the Opera. Because you want to know, does it have a happy ending or not? I don't buy movies that don't have happy endings, like, et cetera, right? You want to know what's there so that you can be like, oh, I'm not going to get this movie, The Unknown, because like my audience isn't going to like it or whatever. Um, so they would give away the whole plot. Um, stills photos were used for wide varieties of purposes um, all throughout a film's life. Okay. Questions came up for me during the movie because I wasn't expecting it to be so many stills mm. and like for every scene. Yeah. I thought that there would be cases of just like a synopsis of like, here's what happens in the scene. Sure. And, you know, there's a little bit of that where they kind of have to fill in the gaps. Like when there's title cards that come up, they're like, Hibbs leaves the room and then Burke comes in and grabs this guy. Like a title card wouldn't say that yeah but yeah uh a lot of times too like you'll have way more stills photos than what marketing uses stills photos are a little bit different nowadays because of like the huge amount of like cgi and stuff in movies um we kind of see a little less of them now also there's like way bigger like spoiler culture around movies yeah and all this stuff but they're like i said still totally a thing that exists today well spoiler Roger Balfour is dead. That is how the movie starts. We see that he leaves a suicide note and happening to be in the area is private investigator Burke, who um, comes in and uh, he's trying to investigate, like, is the suicide note legit? Now, the person who found Balfour is Mr. Williams, the butler. The last person to see him alive was Sir James Hamlin, who is both Roger's uh, like next door neighbor and best friend uh, and like executor of his will. Hamlin has a nephew, Mr. Hibbs, who um, was like reading 
during the time of the murder. <laughs> and then um, Roger has a daughter, Lucille Balfour. Um, she also will go by Lucy. Uh, so those are the people involved. Mr. Hibbs name is Arthur. And so it's like Lucy and Arthur. Huh. I wonder if someone's read Dracula. Now, ultimately, Burke says that he's going to rule it a suicide, but he never actually officially closes the case. Five years later, and the Hamlin maid, uh, whose name is Smithson, sees some weird people moving into the old Balfour place um, because they're, they're renting it. And these weird people appears to be like a guy in a top hat who is short and stout and has sharp, sharp teeth and a weird looking goth lady. Yeah, a bunch of people move in next door to throw a Halloween party and the maid thinks they're vampires. Exactly. I just kept thinking the whole time everyone was freaking out about these people that like, I don't know, man, like go knock on the door and talk to them. Like maybe they're just weird looking people. Like, come on. (laughs) Anyways. People these days don't say hi to their neighbors. Yeah, man. Like hide behind their telephones. Don't, don't, don't just spend your time looking through your windows at your neighbors, like wondering what crimes they're up to. Like go talk to them. They're people. Now, Hamlin gets a little spooked because he receives a note and it ends up being a copy of the suicide note. And so he calls in Burke to be like, weird people have moved in next door. They really freaked out my maid. And I got this note that I it, like it's exact. It's exactly the note. Something weird is going on. Smithson is like, oh, I bet they're vampires. Like worse than ghosts, they're vampires. Hibbs isn't really sure what to believe, uh, and Hamlin's like, well, we should check on the Balfour tomb, just in case it is vampires. Burke doesn't believe any of this, but Hibbs and Hamlin become convinced after they check the tomb, and Roger Balfour is no longer in his resting place. Burke still needs some convincing, and so he and Hamlin go over to the house during the day and snoop around, just like let themselves in, not like that's trespassing or anything. Um, And they don't find anything, but they do find bats, which luckily a book of vampire lore and exposition uh, explains that during the day, vampires turn into bats to sleep. They begin vampire-proofing the Hamlin household, particularly because Lucy keeps hearing the voice of her dad calling her from the garden. And there's been like possibly the top hat vampire coming into the house and spooking the maid or something like that. So now everyone's like, well, this has to have something to do with Roger's death. Like, was it actually a suicide? Was it murder? And these people are like the people who did the murder. Like what's going on? Burke does approach Lucy and says to her like, Hey, I think your dad was actually murdered it wasn't a suicide, and I'm going to ask you to do some things for me, and I need your absolute trust. Now, Hibbs is like, nah, Burke, I think you're up to something, and he confronts Burke, and in that scene, Hibbs basically gets hypnotized. So Hibbs is hypnotized through that night, and Burke basically goes to sleep in Hibbs's bed and is awoken when he's, like, attacked in bed. And he's like, okay, clearly these people were actually going after Arthur Hibbs. And then it turns out Lucy has been kidnapped by the vampires. So Hibbs is on high alert. Hamlin is on high alert. And they all, plus Burke, head over to the Belfer place. Um, When they are there, Burke hypnotizes 
Hamlin. And at the house, everything is kind of set up to recreate the scene of the crime. They have what appears to be Roger Balfour sitting in the study. Uh, Lucy is there in like a dress that she was wearing when she was younger. Um, And in fact, the night of the crime, um, they set everything up to be exactly that. And Hamlin proceeds to recreate the crime. Dun, dun, dun. He's the murderer. Turns out, so he was like talking with Roger Balfour and Roger's like, yeah, um, I've made you the executive of my will. I'm so happy that uh, you've agreed to look after Lucy if anything should happen to me. And Hamlin's like, yeah, I'm happy to do so, especially because I want Lucy to be my wife someday. Roger's like, she's like 12. What the fuck? And Hamlin's like, no, I mean, in like five or six years. And Roger's like, no, I'm not going to agree to that. That's ridiculous. And Hamlin's like, oh, you? And then leaves because it's like 11 p.m. And then he comes back after, after midnight, midnight and at gunpoint forces Roger to write the suicide note. Now, And then he starts blasting. And then he starts blasting. So Burke ends the hypnosis and is like, Hamlin, you committed the murder um, because you wanted Lucy and uh, you were prepared to kill your nephew because you, again, wanted Lucy for yourself. And Lucy and Arthur Hibbs have fallen in love. And, you know, Roger was an impersonator. Luna, the vampire, was actually uh, like a circus performer. Um, and this was all done to set up this recreation of the crime because of Burke, his theory that... Um, if under hypnosis, the criminal will recreate their crime. And Burke was the man in the hat. Burke was the man in the hat. And he's also um, someone who works at Scotland Yard, not just a private investigator. Yeah, like his Professor Burke persona, where he's got like white hair and like business glasses or whatever, is also fake. And yes. like his real identity as Inspector Burke of Scotland Yard just looks like regular Lon Chaney. Yeah, it's... um. <laughs> It had me thinking about uh, Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. Because mm. it's like, how deep does this go? Do you have, like, fake families? Like, right. what, so, what is real? So that's the end. <laughs> so this story really does not make sense. No. I didn't even clock that Roger, who gets shot at the end, was an impersonator. Um, that wasn't really clear in the reconstruction we watched. I just made the leap. Okay. I, I don't know for Cause, sure. Because, like... I mean, I, hopefully he was an impersonator. Well, and then like, okay, so I'm watching the movie and I just have all these questions. Like, okay. Why? Why is a big one. Like if your plan is to prove that Balfour, is to prove that Hamlin killed Balfour by hypnotizing him into recreating the, the whole scene of the crime, why wait five years Yeah. for one? why vampires like at all it has nothing to do with anything um it freaks out hibbs it freaks out the maid it freaks out hamlin but hamlin's all like burke weird people moved in next door you need to call the police and have them arrested immediately because i'm pretty sure they killed roger and it's like you've never even talked to them they just moved in like and also as far as you were concerned the case was closed yeah, like Burke thought it was suicide. Like you got away with it. Yeah. You don't need to start pinning it on other people who look like vampires. And then like, why is Hamlin the one who's like, we need to check Roger's tomb. Like it's he might be a risen vampire or whatever. It's like, why would you think that? 
And then they go to check Roger's tomb. Roger's body isn't there, which means that like, you know, Burke took it out as part of his elaborate vampire scheme. But like, again, why vampires? And then like, what's the deal with Balfour? Like, I didn't really understand what was going on because yeah, like we see Roger Balfour with the vampires. Lucy hears his voice in the garden. And then the Roger Balfour we see with the vampires is part of the like reconstruction of the murder weird that we're watching a reconstruction of a reconstruction and then hamlin comes in and shoots him again and we see him dead on the ground again and i was like okay well so to be fair burke does give hamlin his gun which would presumably have like blanks in it when so he doesn't actually like, kill hopefully, the Ro- roger impersonator yeah because like here are the different things that this could be did burke and balfour fake balfour's death to begin with in order to do this thing five years later to prove that hamlin killed him and that's why burke was like in the area right when the murder happened anyway oh and then that's really roger at the end and i just assumed that was like a red herring because there are times where you're like you're supposed to maybe suspect uh burke yeah um so is that really roger at the end and then if that is really roger at the end like are you arresting hamlin for attempted murder or murder murder or did you just let Hamlin murder Burke again? Because the problem with this stills frame reconstruction or anything is that like we don't exactly see Balfour get back up again after yeah. he gets shot at the end. And we don't have any title card being like, Roger got back up and hugged his daughter and then went off to the farm right. with the other Rogers. Right. And like, there's no title card with Burke explaining who roger is like if it's roger if it's someone impersonating roger if he's dead if he's alive so i was really confused by all of that and yeah like just why dress up as vampires i don't none of this seems necessary and it also seems like you could have solved this murder without doing any of this like it turns (laughs) out it's like oh it was hamlin the guy who 20 minutes before this happened was named the executor of the dead guy's will. Yeah, yeah, right? Wild. Um, I I will say a lot of the critiques that you're bringing up, mm -hmm. which I agree with, are also things we brought up in Mark of the Vampire. Mark of the Vampire at least makes slightly more sense, if only because... It's sound, and so we can discuss and convey meaning, especially when something's so complicated, right? Like, when it's a silent film... Even if this wasn't a reconstruction, like you only have so much room to put text on your title cards. Yeah. And also like Mark of the Vampire fix, like kind of ties together at least some of these loose threads. Like the murderer in Mark of the Vampire doesn't stage the dead guy's death as being a suicide. He stages it as a vampire attack. Yeah. Which is a wild nonsense thing to do. Like, I'm going to make it so that no one suspected I killed this person by making it seem like a supernatural creature <laughs> that doesn't exist kills but it, this person. it at least brings in, like, why vampires? Right, exactly. It at least explains why you would do it all with vampires later. And there was, like, a curse on the family or whatever, Yeah, right? and it's like, also, so like, like that. It, it's not a five-year gap of time in yeah. Mark of the Vampire. So Mark of the Vampire story is still, frankly, absurd. But it is an improvement. Yeah. Which I think is also the other point that I wanted to make here in that just watch Mark of the Vampire if you want to see London After Midnight. Basically. It would have been neat to see Lon Chaney acting and doing a dual role, um, a, a kind of a triple role sure. here. Because it's always fun to see actors do that. But it's it's fine here. 
he is a very different kind of vampire from like Bella Lugosi, right? Like Bella Lugosi is like a silent walk through the night, you know, give people the hypnotism eye and uh, be spooky. And Lon Chaney's vampire here is a guy who you, if you could has hear... little dopey bat wings. Yeah, on his cape. But he also like, he's kind of this hunched over figure who kind of like waddles around and like, just his overall expression in all of these still photos makes you think that if he could talk, it would be like, I am the vampire. Like, yeah, no, totally. There's a reason why Tim Burton chose this source for the penguin look. Yeah. So you're right. Like the only thing that Mark of the Vampire doesn't have is Lon Chaney. And I, I think, you know, looking at this reconstruction, like what, if this was the full movie, which I think was about 70 minutes long, maybe like 10 of those minutes would have his vampire in them. Yeah. And I feel like it even makes more sense. Mark of the vampire for that role to be split. Yeah. Just in terms of logistics. Yeah, for sure. Like the only reason it works like this in this movie is because it's Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney like did his own makeup and that's his whole gimmick. Right. Like this is really just a movie to let Lon Chaney show off being Lon Chaney. Yeah. I mean, like, Luna's knit makeup is exactly the same, too. Right. Um, her outfit is exactly the same. It's also probably the same dress that you would see in Dracula for, like, the wives. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all pretty standard. But, like, I don't know. It's interesting. This reconstruction was good. It, like I said, interesting. I will say for the sets, because uh, we wanted to speak a little bit about, like, the, the gothic atmosphere or whatever... The sets are interesting, but there's nothing that feels so captivating as in Cat and the Canary. Mm. That being said, part of that captivation is maybe because it's like moving camera and really feeling like you're just drawn in and like yeah. there are camera tricks going on there, which you won't get from a reconstruction. Yeah, you don't get camera movement. You don't get the movement of things in frame. Um, the other thing too is stills is like they would be using the lighting as present, right? That the cinematographer set up. But the camera might not be set to the same like exposure levels and things. So you're kind of getting the cinematography, but you're kind of not getting the cinematography. Um, You're not really getting exactly how the film would have been edited. Now, they followed in making this reconstruction. They followed the shooting script, which shows like close up on this and then wide shot of this. And that's kind of how they were choosing the angles as they went. Um, So it's like. It's the most reasonable reconstruction you can have, but it's still not actually seeing the movie. Um, So who knows if London After Midnight is good or not, but I I am inclined to agree with the critics who say it didn't make sense. And I'm also inclined to agree with the film historians who have said it, it probably doesn't live up to all the hype that has been building about it for, you know, 50, 60 years. Absolutely. Uh, Even if, we didn't have these quibbles. I don't think anything would live up to the reputation that it has garnered. Yeah, exactly. Like for instance, um, there's only one surviving authentic London after midnight poster from the 1920s. And I forget who bought it. It was like a rock star and it's the most expensive like movie poster sold at auction kind of thing. Like it was like $4 million or something like, like wild like that. Like this movie has taken on a huge life of its own that, you know, it just can't live up to like a lot of classic silent movies, even like Nosferatu. Nosferatu is great. And I, and that was sort of lost too, right? It was then discovered. And 
I don't like Nosferatu. If you watch it and you kind of heard all the things about it, like Nosferatu is good, but you kind of have to like buy into, you know, the language of silent films, right? Like it's cool, but like you have to deal with the fact that like the vampire's out at daytime because they can't shoot at night and like Gustav with his over the top acting and like, you know what I mean? Like you can build up an image of something in your mind and it'll always be exactly what you want it to be. And the real thing often doesn't live up to that. Don't meet your heroes, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am glad that we watched this. It was a fun time. And uh, I want to give a shout out to our patrons of the night for voting for London After Midnight, the reconstruction, to be September's horror-adjacent bonus episode. So if you want to be voting on those horror-adjacent bonus episodes... Uh, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, sign up at any patron level and that'll get you access. The October vote will be on that website by the time you hear this episode. Oh yeah. It's already up. And I'm sure there will be some great spooky adjacent options for October. Absolutely. Plus October is when we do a bunch of bonus bonus content. Um, we do some very special things for our patrons, uh, because you know, it's like, it's the month, it's the month. Yeah. So, uh, if you sign up now, you'll for sure get all that stuff right to your inbox. Exactly. Like in the past, we've done music albums. We've done audio books. We've done original short stories. There's always like cool stuff. There's usually like a bonus episode. Yeah. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene, and uh, our website is ScreamScenePodcast.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you'd like to help the show out, leave us a rating or a review, tell your friends about us, uh, and I hope you'll be able to join us next week when our movie will be Invisible Invaders. Thank you so much for listening. Bye! Bye! Bye!